Why don't you guys turn there in your notes? A lot of notes here. I'm not going to read all these passages. Some of them and refer to some. I'm going to just touch on what's underlined there. And, um, you know, let's start by reading the text together and then we'll set this up and just make our way down through the passage. As I mentioned earlier, the title tonight is Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. And notice here, Revelation 5.1, And I saw, the, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Well, last week we saw that scene in heaven, really the last few weeks in chapter 4, which seems to be the scene after the rapture of the church. If you approach the book of Revelation with a pre-trib view, which we've been doing and talking about that. And, you know, we know the Lord knows when he's coming back. We're to look every day, but we made a case for that and we looked at that scripturally. And now we're moving on here, seeing these scenes in heaven before these seals begin to broken, be broken and the world is thrusted into what is called the Great Tribulation or Daniel's 70th week, which we've been talking about for the past year on Wednesday night. So we're seeing in heaven at this time what's going on. Again, last week we saw the 24 thrones with 24 elders. We looked ahead in chapter 5 and we saw them really representing being a picture of a large group that had been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb from every tribe and tongues and people. And remember, they had crowns. They had uh, robes and they were on thrones. And that's the things that Jesus said the church would have, you know, at, in glory and so forth. So it's a clear picture of the church there in glory. And then we saw the worship around the throne of God. These living creatures, the elders and so forth. So again, entering into five, it's a continuation of that. And now we see Jesus the one who's worthy, taking the scroll with these seven seals from the Father's hand. Now, we want to set this up. We know that when man was created, and we'll go into detail in this, but I kind of want to give a little overview here. When man was created, he was given dominion over the earth. We'll look at some scriptures on that here in a minute. When man fell, when man ate of the tree, wanting to be his own God, not only did he make break communion with God and become a slave of sin, not only did physical death begin to set in and spiritual death, man also forfeited that dominion, though it seems he has it still to a degree, but he forfeited at the minimum part of it, if not all of it, to the enemy of our soul. And we'll talk about that and look at scriptures that talk about Satan being the prince of the power of the air. The whole world be under its way. How did that happen? Where did that happen? God didn't create create the earth and man and said, now I'm going to bring Satan in and let him be the prince of the power of the air. It's clear that that happened when man sinned there in the garden. It seems that 
the legal deed of the earth that had been given to man to manage the earth, though there is a legality over even that, God Almighty was forfeited to the enemy at that time. At the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, and the, when the, at the cross and resurrection, the penalty of man's sin of forfeiting those things which paid for, and we'll see scripture tonight, that the Lord took that deed back as a kinsman redeemer, as our kinsman redeemer, and put it in the hand of the Father. And now here we are at the end of the age of this dispensation, and we see this scroll with these seven seals that, again, I'll make a case that this is the deed of the earth being taken from the Father's hand back to the Son, and the Son being the only one able to open the deed of the earth because by Jewish law, listen, if there is a deed or if there is something sealed, only the rightful owner of that deed is able to open it. We'll see that from that, we'll refer to it, but what comes next as the seals begin to be broken in chapter 6 is wrath or punishment poured out on this earth absolutely from Christ, from God, as those seals are broken. And then finally that moves through the tribulation where we see at the end of the tribulation Jesus reigning for a thousand years. And we refer to it often and it's come up often already in our study in Revelation. We see that we will rule and reign with the Lord during that time as kings and priests once again having dominion over the earth through our kinsman redeemer. So let's talk about this. Notice here verse 1 again. I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now I want to set this up a little bit first. The right hand is always the hand of power. And this seal here is in the right hand of the Father. We need to know, and we're going to see, again, we've already referred to it, Satan is the God of this world, but he's still subjected to a higher authority. And that higher authority is God Almighty who is on the throne. It's like this tonight. Um, if you get to the point where you pay off your home, boy, that's a long process, isn't it, not nowadays. But if you do do that, you get the deed to your home that says you own that home. But let's be truthful tonight. Do you really own that home? You're subjected to a higher authority. You're subjected to a government. You're subjected to taxes, permits. You could be subjected to fines and ordinances and all sorts of things. And you might fool yourself and say, I own this whole house. You don't own anything. I hate to break the news because, listen, the way things are going in the world today, who knows what they're going to do next to come in and take that right from you. Praise God, we have a mansion in heaven in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're passing through here, and the scripture says that those who buy actually should live as if they don't possess. These things are just wood and brick tents is what they are. We're thankful for them. We're grateful for them. We want to be good stewards. Listen, the Bible speaks much about land ownership and home ownership. It's part of God's plan, but guess what? It got messed up when man sinned in the garden. So we know that Satan, and we'll establish this more, he's the prince of power of the air, and we see again, We'll even see him offering, offering when he tempts Christ, the kingdoms of the earth. How can he do that? But with all that, listen, he's subjected to God. Job 1.6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God 
came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And it talks about Satan being accountability to God. So we start this off by seeing the right hand of the Father. It is the hand of power and he is the power upon high. In fact, notice what it says next. We see this over and over again. Where do we see God? Where do we see the one with the right hand of power? He is seated on the throne. And Sunday morning, we talked about this in great detail in Psalm 93. And we saw this in great detail the week before in Revelation 4. And I didn't plan that out. That's just where we ended up verse by verse, which is pretty awesome. We saw both uh, of the last services, God on the throne. And indeed, in this chapter alone, 14 times it speaks of thrones. And in 46 times in the book of Revelation, it speaks of thrones. Predominantly God being on the throne. But it also speaks of the church, those with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus said, to him who overcomes, he'll sit on the throne with me as I sit on the throne with my Father. And so we have a great future and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Side note, and we'll get into this more in some weeks to come, tribulation saints, you never see them sitting on the throne. They're never, they're before the throne. They're never given crowns though. And they are, um, you know what, not in a place of judging the earth. Revelation 20 verse 4 speaks of those who are on thrones judging the earth. That's the church. And then it sees the souls of those beheaded during the tribulation They're not on thrones and they're not judging. Two different completely groups. It's another great case for the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And I'm excited about getting to that in the days to come. But for the most part, when it speaks of thrones in Revelation, it's speaking of God who's on a throne. And it's reiterated over and over again in this book because I think it's something to comfort us while we're going through this. There's a lot of people, they won't touch the book of Revelation with a 10-foot pole. There's a lot of churches they won't even touch it. They won't even approach it. Oh, that's scary. Or I don't, I don't know how to understand that, even though a clear outline is given in chapter 1 as we've looked at. But throughout this, yes, there are some things in here that can be disturbing. But remember what the, the writer, what John, you know, it was told to write there. Blessed is he who, who, who reads and who hears and keeps the words of this prophecy. And how reassuring as we're going through this study over and over and over again we're reminded hey everything going on but god's on the throne and whatever's going on in your life tonight god's on the throne and we see continually he's not panicking before the throne but what is he he's seated on the throne and we see this reiterated throughout the word verses like psalm eleven four: the lord is in his holy temple the lord's throne is in heaven Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom, hear this, rules over all. Do you believe that tonight? Can we say amen to that? And again, Isaiah 66, 1, the Lord says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Now, again, I saw him. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. We got to understand that God is a God who puts forth legalities. The scripture is full of legal boundaries. It's full of covenants. It's full of laws. God's a God of order. God's a God of structure. Absolutely, 
We see this between man and God, and we see this between men and men. Tonight, I'll ask you, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Can you say amen to that? Then listen, when you called upon the Lord, you entered into covenant with God. It's one of the assurances of our salvation, that Jesus paid the penalty of our sin, that we were purchased not with things that perish like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, And when we put our faith in Christ, we entered into covenant that the Lord has made available to us. And it's one of the reasons why, again, we can have assurance of our salvation. Jesus paid the penalty. And through my faith in him, by his grace, I know that I know that I'm saved. I'm in a legality or a a legal binding contract with the Lord based on what Jesus has done for me. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Again, you see legal boundaries and covenants and laws throughout the word you see passages like this deuteronomy 19 14 you should not remove your neighbor's landmark which men of old have set in your inheritance which you will inherit the land of the lord your god that is giving you to possess speaking to israel deuteronomy 27 17 cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark these things are throughout the word of god in fact in a minute here we're going to see the prophet jeremiah purchasing a piece of land getting the deed for it and it being bound up by seals as we see here this scroll with seven seals on it this scroll here again that's in the hand of the father sealed with seven seals looks like a legal document and again i want to make the case that it's the deed of the earth that Jesus has now, that at one time Satan had because man forfeited it, again, back in the garden. The verses that are before you next, I'm not going to read through all of them. We talk about this often. I'm just going to refer to the underlying stuff here. We know after God created man there, Genesis 1.16, I'll just read the beginning. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over And it goes through the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps. Talks about us being created in the image and likeness of God. That's only mankind. And then he tells man to fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over all of these things. Listen, a lot of people have it wrong today. They act like man's a curse on the earth, a curse to Mother Earth, to Mother Gaia, or whatever. And then man's just an accident here, and it's all about the earth. That's wrong The earth was created for man to have dominion over it. Everything should be done with the welfare of mankind in mind. Unfortunately, again, as the scripture says, when they become thankful, unthankful to God, they begin to worship the creation instead of the creator. And sin always puts things upside down and puts things on their head. In Genesis 2, God gave man a charge. Again, eat of any tree of the garden, you're going to be blessed. But the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you need to know in that day you're going to die. We talk about this all the time. It's imperative that we know these things. He was speaking of physical death setting in. He was speaking of spiritual death setting in or separation between man and God. God's holy. God is not commune with sin. When man ate of that tree, again, in Genesis 3 there, we see the account. The serpent comes along, he villainizes God, he puts forth a lie. The woman eats of the tree, she gives to her husband, he eats of the tree. 
they made a choice we want to be our own god we're going to believe the serpent over god as he villainized god and came against the word of god listen we always want to stand in the word of god there's a lot of things in the world that you should question but one thing we should never question is god's word it is purified like gold purified seven times over in a refiner's furnace when that happened notice genesis three fifteen. it's not only the first mention of the gospel but it mentions a new element had to come into this earth man's in a place where he has dominion and now all of a sudden we see conflict that has been brought into the earth between satan who's tempted man to fall to follow his rebellion and with mankind notice there genesis 3 15 i will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel now this is speaking of the messiah who would come through the seed of woman as the holy spirit would overshadow a virgin who would live a sinless life go to the cross of calvary satan would bruise his heel but boy, Jesus crushed his head, did he not, when he atoned for our sins and rose from the grave. But notice here, enmity, or there will be strife between you and the woman, between the enemy and mankind. An element has been introduced. It's as if man has forfeited that dominion over the earth. At the minimum, he's in a place where he's sharing it to a degree. And then we start reading of verses of Satan now, having dominion over the earth and being in a place over a fallen world and under his sway notice ephesians 2 1 it says he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins and what you once walked according to the course of the world according to the prince of the power of the air you ever read that and go how did satan become the prince of the power of the air we don't read about that in creation right we don't read, and then on day seven, when the Lord was resting, he said, hey, you know, we need a prince of the power of the air. You know, Lucifer, you fell, but hey, we're going to give you a, a mulligan. We're going to let you give a do-over here. Don't read about that. When did that happen? When did he become the prince of the power of the air? When man followed his false gospel. Satan gave a false gospel. If you eat of that tree, you won't die. If you eat of it, you'll be like God. Man put his faith in Satan on that day. You could say, in a way, Adam and Eve became Satanists that day. Now, I believe they repented afterwards. There's evidence of that in Genesis, you know, what comes after that, and God making covering for their sins, and then them looking for the Savior, and so forth. But on that day, they believed a false gospel, and they were in a place where, through their choice, they gave dominion, it seems, they gave the deed of the earth to the enemy, and all of a sudden, where man was supposed to be the prince on earth, again, god's the king they forfeited that to the enemy all of a sudden he becomes the prince of the power of the air notice first john five nineteen. we know we're of god do you know that tonight you said jesus is your lord right no you're of god and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one well when did that happen when man sinned in the garden second corinthians 4 3 but even if the gospel is veiled is veiled to those who's perishing whose minds the god of this age has blinded who gave satan such authority who allowed them to be in that place? The Lord never gave that. That happened when man sinned in the garden. It was a forfeiting of dominion. Really a forfeiting of the deed of the earth. Jesus says in John 14, 30, the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Jesus was speaking of Satan there. 
Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, calls Satan the ruler of this world. The rule of the world is coming for me. And then in John 18, 6, he refers to Satan again. The ruler of this world is judged, talking about Satan. And then this is very interesting in Matthew 4, 8, and I think this really solidifies this scripturally. This is when Jesus was being tempted by Satan at the beginning of his earthly public ministry. It says, and again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he or Satan said to Jesus, all these things I'll give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. How could he say such a thing unless he had the ability to do that? And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Notice, Jesus didn't step back and go, what are you talking about? That's not yours to give. Doesn't say that, does he? He rebukes him with scripture. But he doesn't just say, that's not yours to give. It'd be like me saying, hey, see that car? You know, pick out your favorite car right up there. There's the lineup. Whichever one you want, I'll give to you right now. Come on up, and I'll give you that car. Can I do that if I don't got the title of that car? I can't do that, can I? Satan here is offering Jesus the kingdoms of the earth if he'll fall down and worship, and he's offering that because he had the ability to give that. Very interesting where you go in today and people talking about selling their souls to the devil. There's a lot of talk about that. Now, praise God, the Lord's truth is greater than the Satan's lies. And there have been people that have even gone that route through some occultic practice and have been delivered through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'll tell you, there are a lot of people who talk about making a deal with the enemy to become popular, to get rich, to have fame and so forth. And indeed, the devil holds up his end. But on the other end, it's going to cost them their soul. Look, that's found in Scripture. Like, oh, come on, sell your soul to the devil. Satan said to Jesus, sell your soul to me and I'll give you all this. You think that's an unbiblical concept? That's found in the word of God. And this is why in part through man's sin and Satan coming in and his influence and dominion and so forth. You know, we're living in a world that's is getting darker and darker. We have spiritual warfare in Ephesians. It talks about the Christian standing against the wiles of the devil there in Ephesians 6. It's talking about we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but these powers and principalities, you know, rulers of darkness and high places and so forth. We're in a spiritual war because when we come to Christ, we come from underneath that dominion of the enemy. Again, we were under his sway. We walked according to the enemy's heart and mind. Well, in Christ Jesus, we're liberated. Now we are citizens of God. We're part of the family of God. We're covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But while we're on earth, we're still in a spiritual battle. Now listen, we're building on some things here. In the Old Testament, especially land, was very, very important. You ever say, I'm going to read through the Bible? Hopefully you have. Hopefully you're doing that. I encourage everyone to be reading through the Bible once a year. If you do about three chapters a day, you'll get through the Bible in a year it's a great thing to be doing but you're going to come to some chapters you're going to come through some stretches that are going to feel like you're going through the desert you ever been there before and it's not that there aren't gold in them deserts there absolutely is 
but a lot of times it's things that have to do with genealogy what there's a great reason for and there's things that have to do with land and there's laws and so forth and i'll tell you with the israelites when god gave them canaan that land of milk and honey it wasn't just for the lord to bless them with plenty as they moved with faith into that land of canaan but absolutely it was the lord it was for the lord to establish them in a land so that they could be all the more solidified as the people who God would use to bring the Messiah of the world through. And so when it talks about their land, when it talks about, you know, um, Ahab and Jezebel trying to get Naboth's vineyard and him saying, I'm not going to give that to you. That wasn't him disrespecting the king who wanted his land. That was him understanding this is part of the promise of Messiah to come. We're to keep this land. We're to stay in this land. Because the Lord is bringing the Messiah through us. And part of that promise and part of faith in that is understanding God has given us this land and these borders to flourish in that we could be the people who the Messiah comes through. It's more than just, you know, him just saying, I'm keeping this for myself. And really for uh, Jezebel and Ahab, it's more than I just want that land. They're really a picture of Antichrist trying to steal the promises of God from the people of God. So land's incredibly important. And we read in the scripture there under the covenants with Israel, if someone were to begin to make bad decisions and move into a place of poverty where they would lose their land through debt or so forth, other reasons, we read about a way for a kinsman redeemer to come along to be able to purchase that land back for them. And in fact, after 50 years, the land would always, you know, it returned to whoever it belonged to. And the reasons for that was absolutely in part of the promise of Messiah. Now, notice Leviticus 25, 23 through uh, 25. It says, the land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine. For your strangers and sojourners with me and all the land of your possessions, you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brother becomes poor and has sold some of his possessions, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother has sold. And think with me, what book is about a kinsman redeemer? The book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is all about this. Where Naomi and her husband, they're there in Israel, and there's a great famine going on. And instead of waiting it out and waiting on the Lord and saying, look at God's going to provide for us even in this place. What did they do? They fled. They fled to Moab. They fled to Gentile territory. And really in doing that, they were making light of the promise of the Messiah. They got out there. Things didn't go well. In time, Neoma's husbands died. Her sons died. Uh, the only thing that was left was her and her two daughter-in-laws when she heard about Israel prospering again. And we know Ruth swore to follow her wherever she went and it was because she had come to have faith in the god of heaven it's an awesome story they come back to the land of israel and they're completely impoverished and they know the only way we can get our land back is if we have a kinsman redeemer if someone who is close of kin with us will go back and buy the land on our behalf because we can't do it ourselves we're bankrupt now when women were involved with this, with husbands that had deceased, whatever relative would come in to redeem that land would also have to take on the woman as his wife. If it was a brother redeeming the land of a brother, listen, you would take your brother's wife, 
you know, your brother's dead, but you would take his wife upon yourself to be a kinsman redeemer. And we know that's the case there in the book of Ruth as they got back to the land and the Lord orchestrated the whole thing where Ruth starts gleaning in Boaz's field. And Boaz being a man of God, he's just blown away by this little Moabite girl who was a pagan who'd come faith with the Lord who could have stayed in Moab and prospered you know what but instead she followed Naomi back in poverty because of her faith in the Lord and he marveled at it he said this is an awesome thing and at that time he didn't even know about the relation and then eventually we know what happens he hears of a kinsman that's closer in a, a relative who can redeem again the land and they would have to marry Ruth that guy's not interested in doing it. And Boaz steps up and he pays the debt that they owed. And not only does he redeem again Ruth, but he redeems the land. He's their kinsman redeemer. And listen, it worked out pretty good because they had a kid named Jesse and Jesse had a kid named David. And you know who came through David? The Lord Jesus Christ. It's awesome. Hear this tonight. Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. He purchased us out of the debt of our sin we don't have the means to pay the debt of our sin. I know there's some do-gooders out there. They have oh, a swell guy, though. And boy, I can go and I can do it. You can't do it. <laughs> You're a rank, filthy sinner, and so am I. In fact, I'll give, you, I'll, I'll give you a little insight. The more that you think you're not a sinner, the more you are. Because Jesus read the riot act way more to the Pharisees than they ever did to the prostitutes. Those guys that think they're about a citizen of the year, man, I'm a good guy. The scripture says your righteousness is as filthy rags. And so are mine. I can't purchase myself out of sin and the penalty of my sin, which is hell. It's damnation. But Jesus Christ purchased us out of sin. And he also purchased that which man forfeited the deed of the earth. Notice 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you are not redeemed from corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without spot. Boaz redeemed Ruth and Naomi in that land through gold and silver. Jesus Christ redeemed us through his shed blood. Notice Colossians 2.14, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public, public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. This is at the cross when we were deemed. He made Satan a public spectacle and triumphed over them, not only in our salvation, but indeed taking that deed back. Notice Ephesians 1.20 through 23 which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Notice, far above all principality and power. Notice that he and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Now listen, it's never that God lost control. He was always in control, but man forfeited dominion there in the garden. That's how Satan became the prince of the power of the air. But Satan was defeated and disarmed at the cross of Calvary when our debt was paid, when we were redeemed through his shed blood, and absolutely when he took that deed of the earth back. That's what we're reading about in Revelation. 
he put it in the hands of the father and now in the time soon to come that we read about here at the beginning of the tribulation that's the time when he chooses to claim that deed and i think a great picture of this is found in the book of jeremiah in chapter 32 we know that judah is going into captivity because of their sin jeremiah has prophesied of this he's called them into repentance but as this is happening he's instructed to buy a field for a time later on notice just the underlying parts there in jeremiah 32 it says buy my field which is in anahoth for the right of redemption is yours to buy it it's the same process he's saying redeem my field and it can be yours it goes on to say for the right of inheritance is yours and the redemption is yours buy it for yourself and then notice down there in verse 10 and i signed the deed and sealed it took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales so i took the purchase deed both that which was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open i gave the purchase deed to barak the son of neriah and the son of Mahasiah in the presence of Hamalal, my uncle, in the presence of the witness who signed the purchase deed before the Jews who sat in the court of prison. Now listen, he's redeeming this land, but they're about to go into 70 years of captivity. He says here, take the deeds, both the purchase deed, which is sealed, and the deed which is open, and notice, put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. So the deed is taken, it's sealed, it's put in an earthen vessel for a later time when it would be open and the land again would be redeemed. And when Christ paid the penalty of our sins, again, he redeemed us. He's our kinsman redeemer. The deed of the earth was taken and it was given to the hand of the father. And the day's coming real soon when Jesus is going to take those seals and begin to break them. And wrath is going to come out upon this earth that is chosen to continue to follow the prince of the power of the air. Because when the deed is open, that's when those that have overstayed their welcome, so to speak, are evicted. The squatters are evicted. Those that don't have legal right to be there are evicted. Praise God in Christ Jesus. We have legal right to glory and the new heaven and the earth and absolutely a thousand year millennial reign of Christ. Some would ask, well, why hasn't the Lord taken the deed and begun to open it yet? It's quite simple. Second Peter 3 9 the lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness but is long suffering towards us not willing that any should perish that all should come to repentance and as some people are like come judge right now lord and again there should be a stirring in our hearts to want to see justice prevail especially this world getting darker and darker and darker let's remember that the lord's long suffering and why is he allowing this to happen why does he start breaking those seals he wants to see people get born again and aren't you glad he waited long enough for you to get born again, for you to be ta- partake of that redemption? And again, when that last seal's broken, it brings forth trumpet, it brings forth bowls of, ramp, of wrath, but eventually it brings forth again an eviction of the nations that gather against God as he tramples them and Satan thrown into the lake of fire or in Sheol or hell for a thousand years he's loose for a short time and then for all of eternity 
He is in the lake of fire. Notice verse 2. That was a lot of time in verse 1. But I think it's worth it. Isn't that awesome? And we need to know what's being talked about here. And notice verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? Again, the only one who can open this scroll is the one who purchased it. Only the legal owner could open this scroll and break the seals on it. Here's a strong angel. Who is this? Is it Gabriel? Is it Michael? No. The strong angel, he says, who's worthy? (laughs) He's not worthy. He's a strong angel, but he's not our kinsman redeemer. He's saying we need someone to break this open. Who is it? Who's worthy to break it? Well, listen, as sin was for or as as the deed was forfeited through one man's sin. Guess what? It's purchased by one man without sin. Notice Romans 515. But the free gift is not like the offense for if by one man's sin or excuse me, for if by the one man's offense, many died much more. The grace of God and gift of grace of one man, Christ Jesus, abounded to many. Again, one man forfeited the deed. Uh, guess what? One man took it back. When a man sinned, he forfeited it. Death brought in. Jesus Christ took it back. When he defeated sin, death, Satan, and hell through his, you know what? His, his, his sinless life laid down on our behalf. He paid the penalty through his shed blood. Couldn't be bought with gold and silver. And then notice verse 3. The angel, the strong angel, saying, who's worthy to open it? John's here in heaven seeing all this. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Again, it had to be the rightful owner to be able to open up the scroll. No one in heaven, everyone in heaven, when you're in heaven, praise God, we won't have a sin nature, but the only reason we're there is because of Christ, our kinsman redeemer. Again, salvation is not of ourself. It's by grace through faith. And no one on earth was able to open it. I know there's some folks running around thinking, oh, I can open that thing, thinking they're little gods or whatnot. Thinking they're righteous. You know what? I love Proverbs 26. Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? No one on earth is worthy to open up that scroll. And absolutely no one under the earth. This is speaking of hell. But see, Bringing that up again, you might say, of course, no one can open up. But really, it's that's not the point. The point is you can look high, you can look low, but there's only one worthy of opening this scroll. Again, by Jewish law, only the rightful owner of a sealed scroll was allowed to open it. Verse four, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or look at it. And again, why could no one else open it? Because of man's sin. Man's sin in the garden. Man's not able to open it. He's weeping in part over sin. We should weep over our sin. Read James 4 there where it talks about lament, weep, and mourn. Bring those things before God. We shouldn't rejoice in sin. We should rejoice our sins are forgiven. Again, humble yourself before the Lord. He'll lift you up. You want to get lifted up out of practical sin? Weep about it. Bring it before the Lord. He wants to lift you up out of it into a better lifestyle and practical living. I would have to think that he's also weeping just over the fact that John has to have a sense of what's coming next 
and he knows this world's under judgment and part of that judgment coming out and the wrath of God coming there at the end of the age came with the breaking of those seals. It's a sad thing when justice doesn't seem to be, uh, you know what, coming forth, is it not? It's a sad thing when you hear about gross crimes committed and people getting away with it. It's a gross, it's a sad thing when you see crimes against humanity and people getting away with it. Have we seen that at all lately, you know? But let's remember Hebrews 10.30. We know of him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And he's weeping over these things. No one's worthy to open the scroll in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. Notice verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose the seven seals. Side note here, one of the elders said to me, listen to your elders. (laughs) Listen to your elders. They've been around longer, practically. And hopefully if they're spiritual elders in a fellowship, hopefully they have a little more insight. You know what? Not to their glory, but to share with you. Look at this elder knew something that actually John knew as well, but he had lost sight of it in an overwhelming moment. There's one worthy to open the scroll. Does he sound familiar to you at all tonight? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Do you know who that is tonight? Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Absolutely. In Genesis 49, 8, down through 10, we read of prophecy from Jacob to his children's, specifically his son Judah, that through his line the Messiah would come. Notice Genesis 49, 8. Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. This is talking about Messiah. No lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Who is being talked about back there in Genesis 49? The Lord Jesus Christ. The root of David. Who's the root of David? The Lord Jesus Christ. As we just talked about with Ruth. Down through Jesse. Down through David. You follow the genealogy. You can follow it again from Eve and Adam through Seth all the way down through Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down again through Judah, down to Jesse, down to David. You see different people involved all the way from Rahab the harlot to, you know, at Ruth here and uh, Tamar and, and Bathsheba, these women of faith. Most of them just complete outcasts, but they say, but I have faith and I trust in the Lord. It's just such a beautiful, awesome, glorious picture. And I'll tell you, that's where all those begats and so forth in the Old Testament, they're glorious when you begin to understand what they're talking about there. Isaiah eleven ten. And in this day there shall be a root of Jesse. Again, Jesse's David's father. It's a root of Jesse. It's a root of David. He shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Who's the root of David? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he says he's prevailed to open the scroll and loose the seven seals. How did he prevail? 
He lived a sinless life. He laid it down and he rose from the grave as our kinsman redeemer to save us and to take the deed of the earth and only he is worthy to open it and break those seals. Verse 6. And I looked and behold in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And who is this lamb who looks as if he's slain? Again, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what John said, John the Baptist, when the Lord started his public ministry. John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what's Isaiah speak of him? Hundreds of years earlier in Isaiah 53, 4, as, as he got prophetic vision of the cross of Calvary, the lamb when he was slain. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And John sees Jesus as a lamb who was slain. Think about that. He bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, bruised, chastised for us, and take, took stripes for us. You think your God doesn't love you? You're, you're, you're listening to lies. And then we see here of seven horns. Horns is a horn is a thing of power in Scripture. Seven, it's, it's a number of perfection. He has perfect power. Eyes, it's a picture of wisdom perfect wisdom the seven spirits of god it's a sense of perfect presence out into all the earth and then notice here we come to verse seven then he came and took the scroll the right hand of him who sat on the throne there's only one worthy jesus had gotten the deed given it to the father now he's taking it back and next week we're going to see great praise and worship erupt in glory Knowing justice is about to be served. The seal's about to be broke. This world is saying, God, we don't want you. We don't want your restraints. We want to do as we will. We want to follow this other one who's come in his own name. And we read they're going to declare peace and safety when this Antichrist comes on the scene when that first seal is broken. One on a white horse goes conquering, and he conquers with a bow. He conquers with covenant. And again, they're going to say, peace and safety. We got our guy. <laughs> He's solving all the problems of the world. And then what's going to happen? Sudden destruction comes upon him, and it comes with the breaking of those seals in heaven. We'll get into that in probably two weeks, the Lord willing. Notice 1 Thessalonians 5.1. We come to this a lot. We've looked at it a lot the last year in these end-time studies. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I, sh that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord as a thief. It starts with the Lord coming for his church. For when they say, again, when they, that ain't us, when they say, why aren't we saying it? When they say peace and safety, again, the first seal, one on a white horse, bringing peace and safety. That covenant made, remember, there in Daniel 9, between Israel and her enemies, peace for seven years. 
I've said it many times. Every president in my lifetime has tried to bring peace to the Middle East, and they failed. There's been some covenants there, and it talks about the Antichrist confirming the covenant. But the world's going to celebrate, and I'll tell you, this world right now is in a mess, and there are people looking for a leader who can come along and solve issues. Because most of the leadership in this world today, it's buffoonery. Am I wrong? It's low-character imbeciles that are just in it for themselves. And everyone can see it. I hope you can see it. They're going to say peace and safety. Then what? Sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And notice, they shall not escape. And we'll see again in a few weeks that second seal's broken and a red horse goes and peace is taken from the earth and men rise up and they don't begin to kill each other. I've talked about this a little bit already. They begin to butcher each other, which is the word that you use for sacrifice to a God in order to eat what is being sacrificed. Right at the beginning of the tribulation, you have cannibalism all over the earth. And I'll tell you, it's backed up by the next horse that comes forth where you see a great famine and people working all day for a loaf of bread. Peace and safety. We don't got that God here anymore. I believe it will be. We don't got those people of God here anymore trying to restrain us. We're called to restrain. We're called to be salt and light. Are we not? Sudden destruction comes upon them. The word destruction here, it means to ruin. It means death. It means punishment. It's going to come upon them as labor pains and they shall not escape. Notice verse 4. But you, brethren, but you, brethren, are not of the darkness. So this day should overtake you as a thief. Again, is he your Lord tonight? Can you say amen? You should be looking for the coming of your Savior for your church that you are part of every single day. And if your eschatology sways you from that, your eschatology needs to take second place to the lord's words always look and be ready for my coming but you brother are not the darkness so this day should overtake you as a thief your sons of the light sons of the day we are not of the night nor of the darkness therefore let us not sleep as others do but let us watch and be sober for those who sleep sleep at night those who get drunk get drunk at night but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. We should be doing that right now. Sober-minded, looking for the Lord, putting on the breastplate of faith, walking in love. Again, with everything going, get on your head. You have the hope of salvation. Start filtering your thoughts through that. I have salvation in the Lord. And then he says in verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath. What's destruction mean? It means punishment. What does wrath mean? It means justified punishment. What's the context here? They say peace and safety, then comes punishment. What's the context again here as we look at this in context? God has not appointed you to that wrath or that punishment. Why? We got a kinsman redeemer. (laughs) But to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Notice verse 11. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are also doing. We're going to build more on this. Some people have the idea that after the sixth seal, when the people of the earth who are saying, who's like the beast, who's able to wage war with them, finally realize wrath's being poured out on them. They say, save us from the day of the wrath. 
that that's when the wrath of God starts. No, no, no. The wrath of God starts when these seals are broken, man. Listen, it's the wrath of God when you're given up to your sin. When God pulls back restraints. You see this throughout the history of Israel when they would go into sin. Second Chronicles 29, it's a time of great rebellion in Israel. They don't want God around. And then notice Second Chronicles 29, 8. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell on Judah and Jerusalem. And notice, he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you will see, as you see with your eyes. You keep pushing God off, you keep pushing God off. You say, I don't want, you know, you take that grace, that mercy for granted. I don't want you, God. I don't want you, God. Eventually, God will give you over to that. Read about Pharaoh. First, he hardened his heart to God. Later on, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which was God saying, I'm just going to give you over to this. And listen, those plagues came down on Egypt pretty hard, didn't they? Praise God tonight for our kinsman redeemer. Praise God for the one worthy to open that scroll. That's how I'm really excited about what we're going to look at next week and then getting there into Revelation 6. It, it's there, there's so so many things here for us to consider to be stirred about you know not only in who we are in the lord and and who our lord is but also in the things coming on the earth in, in the sense of seeing these things unfolded there's part of it that's very exciting because we're seeing so many prophecies being fulfilled and we see how these things you know what are, are, are beginning to shape to be played out and that should be something that strengthens our faith in the lord but it also should be something that stirs us to do two other things to worship god and also to be a people who want to see people get saved because the lord's long suffering wanting people to get saved and let's remember that let's be again a church that's about evangelism amen a church that's about prayer not not just a people self consumed but a people that are gathering together to get edified and build up for the work of the ministry that, that it, it, it's here with one another. But listen, as you go out those gates or those gates or that gate or that door over there, you go out to a mission field around you. At the minimum, begin to pray if you're not praying for lost souls. It starts in the prayer closet. Getting strength from upon high so you can go out and have something to give. You can have an empowered gospel message of the Holy Spirit. And hey, maybe not, I'm full of fear. I don't know about that. Listen, we haven't been given a spirit of fear and it's amazing how a woman or a man who just simply prays can be used of God, even like, I'm not ready. Next thing you know, Lord, just speak. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we bless you tonight and give you praise. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you are worthy to open the scroll. I thank you that you are my, I thank you that you are our kinsman redeemer. Lord, let us rejoice in you, God. I hope and pray tonight, God, we leave her more in love with you. I, think, I pray tonight, God, we will leave here, God, knowing much deeper how much you love us. I thank you, Lord, that we have a great future and hope in you. And not only that, I thank you, Lord, that you're with us right now. Lord God, I just pray tonight, God, if there's any here that don't know you, Lord, that they would come to that place of calling on your name. Lord, it's true we're sinners and that separates us from you. That's bad news. But the good news is you paid the penalty of our sin. Lord, the good news is whoever would call upon your name, humble their heart before he asks you to be their Lord in truth. We read in the word, you'll save them. You'll set them free. You'll wash them. Listen, if that's you tonight, I can't encourage you enough to call upon the name of the Lord in, in, in truth.
not game playing with God or, hey, I'll say this prayer, then I'll be about my business doing my thing. No, it's saying, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Not through a three-minute prayer. The Lord of my life, all my days, be my Lord. I put trust in you. Call on him. He loves to save souls. There's rejoicing in heaven every time a saint is birthed. Every time someone gets born again through the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, bless the rest of our evening. Thank you for a, what a beautiful night, God. We're a blessed, blessed people. I just pray, God, we can encourage one another right now. And God, build up one another. And just bless the fellowship that's found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Amen.